Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 14, The Joys of Succession in Brabant. Hello and welcome to the history of the Netherlands. Before we get going, we want to give a massive and heartfelt thanks to the five, yes, five new supporters on Patreon that we have gotten since releasing our last episode. Yay! That is amazing. Five is my favorite number. So thank you for making my week. Maybe after this episode, we can hit Julian's favorite number. What's your favorite number, Julian? 42. Anyway, those new lovely subscribers in chronological order are Nicholas Burns, the Burns unit, whose support we love to the third degree. The next is Syram Manda, the Salamander. Thank you very, very much. And then we've got Stephen Stratemans, who is a dedicated follower of us on Twitter and who we like to call the Tweet Street. If you want to join the fun on Twitter, follow us at History of NL. Fourth is Joe Sparky Watts, who actually contacted us via our website when he was in Amsterdam and plied us with beers and compliments, which are two of our favorite things. If you want to make new friends, that is the way to do it. Even more so, he shocked us and doubled up with a $2 pledge per episode. So for that reason, we're going to say his name twice. Joe Watts. Joe Watts. On your sparky. Last but not least, in any sense of the word, Michael Smith, or as Julian affectionately calls him, Dad. Dad. Old Papa Smith must have been polishing off a bottle of Geneva when he signed up to our Patreon with a very generous amount, and quite frankly, he's made the rest of our parents need to have a long, hard look at themselves in the mirror and say, be more like Mike. So... Thank you all so much. Your support helps us make this show possible. And as a reward, you don't have to listen to the ad breaks. Hey. If you want to support the show on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. We absolutely love everybody who does. So with that all over, let's delve back into our beloved little swamp. By the mid-1300s, the fractured mini-states of the lowlands were being pulled apart by competing political and economic interests, warfare, dynastic struggles, and the Black Death. The resulting instability meant that relations between the rulers and the ruled were constantly tested as the various layers of society tried to protect their interests in such perilous times. Whereas in Flanders, this had led to bloody conflict between the Count and the cities, in other parts of the lowlands, different methods were used to determine what this relationship should and could be. At a magnificent ceremony in Brabant in 1356, a new duchess and duke signed a document that did exactly this. It confirmed certain rights of their subjects, including the right to disobey the ruler if the ruler had failed to uphold their end of the bargain. Although this so-called joyous entry would be ignored almost from the moment of its signing, it would continue to have symbolic significance throughout the history of the Netherlands. 
The fractious nature of the lowlands was a result of near constant competition between noble families jostling for power. Remembering that all the noble elite had been marrying and reproducing with each other and trying to get themselves and their family members into high positions of temporal and ecclesiastical power. Therefore, the same family names tend to come up a lot across different territories. Basically, the question of which name was to be inserted into which position of power was the root of much intrigue and discussion. Or, if that didn't work, battle. Being the ruler of your family line was a constant game of chess. Some made play with their knights. Others sacrificed their bishops and replaced them with their younger brothers. Those who had castles liked to defend themselves with castles, and in the process, a whole lot of pawns were pointlessly slaughtered. Where we are at now, in the 1340s, the state of the lowlands was thus. The Dampier family were in power in Flanders and Namur. The Avens ruled in Holland, Zeeland, and Hanno. Helders and Zutphen were ruled by Reinald of Wassenberg, who had just earned a promotion from Count to Duke, and who had also wrested control of the Oversticht for himself. Brabant and Limburg were controlled by the House of Regina, a family line that stretched way back into the old Lotharingian days. Luxembourg was ruled by, get this, the House of Luxembourg, Liège and Utrecht were Prince Bishoprics, ruled by people who were almost always related to whichever other of these rulers had managed to get them into those positions. Friesland, as always, but now minus West Friesland, which they had lost a century earlier to the Counts of Holland, was just rocking along, doing its own thing. Go Friesland. All these rulers were playing this great game of 4D chess, with varying levels of success and failure. Amazingly, however, in 80 years' time, one person would say, checkmate, mate, and the game in the lowlands would be over, with just him left standing on top of them all. But to get there, we have to track down a long and complicated path that will take us a few episodes to get through. Furthermore, in our inimitable way, we will get distracted along the way with a random episode on what it was like to be a fish in the North Sea in the late 14th century and to lose everything except your pancreas and your liver. So that's something to look forward to. Before that, at the end of this episode, in fact, we will get to meet the grandfather of the eventual winner of this Lowlander chess game. So, you know, get hyped. The point is, we are almost finished with this very convoluted epoch of Dutch history that we have been in. Today, we're going to remain in the south and focus on Brabant and Flanders. During the time we've been hanging around in recently, roughly the middle 13th to the middle 14th centuries, Brabant was ruled by a bunch of Jans. Jan I had taken over from his infirm of body and mind brother, Henry IV, in the 1260s. In the 1280s, he had gone on campaign and managed to win control of Limburg. So that was nice. He was now the Duke of Brabant and Limburg. We've seen how in international politics, the Flemish counts were almost always curtailed in their ambitions by the French kings. Brabant's interest with Flanders 
was mostly to do with the insane wealth being generated, of course, mainly in the textile industry, of which Brabantine commerce also partook. Brabant was not a vassal of the French king, and so they had few qualms allying with those rebellious Flemish Dampier counts, Guy and Robert of Bethune, against French incursions. Jan I married Margaret of Flanders. However, Brabant's position within an anti-French coalition was cemented when the next Jan in line for dukedom, Jan II, was married to a different Margaret, the seventh daughter of the English king, Edward I. So now the Dukes of Brabant and the English royal family had a connection as well. Jan II would take over from his father and become the Duke in the 1290s. During this period, Brabant was also in a constant glaring contest with Holland, but we are going to leave Holland out of this episode and get back to that later, with only a few references here and now. Let's not complicate things more than needs be. Let's just talk about Belgium. Jan II had lived throughout the period of ridiculous instability in Flanders that we have been covering. He would have on many occasions been awoken with news or brought a hasty and concerned message of yet another uprising, workers' riots, street battles between weavers and fullers, captures of noble lords by angry commoners, or defeat of an army of French knights by peasants holding pointy sticks, happening in the wealthy county to his west. Basically, Jan II had seen how the Flemish counts, whilst struggling for their independence against their French sovereigns, had not particularly handled the growing power of cities and of the people in them who were going about trying to achieve their own version of more freedom and independence. Jan II also had kidney stones, and by the 1310s seemed to know that his time was soon coming. His son, creatively also called Jan, was young. Young Jan. Transitions of power were always periods vulnerable to instability and rebellion, as in the case of any vacuum of power, people on all levels usually made a play to move up a rung or two. Jan II knew that, following his death, if Brabant was to avoid the chaos that had torn Flanders asunder, he had to set a foundation by which the rule of his son would be respected by subjects who were progressively looking for greater rights and freedoms. The result was something called the Charter of Kortenberg. This is the first example in the Lowlands of anything resembling a constitution. Pretty much the Magna Carta of the Netherlands. The Nether Magna Carta. The Charter of Kortenberg puts in writing that the Dukes will not be able to demand arbitrary taxes or levies on citizens, except in a few exceptional circumstances, such as if he should be taken captive and require ransom. It also says that all citizens, rich and poor, would be held honorably to laws and judgments. Also interestingly, the Charter created a council and laid out how this so-called Council of Kortenberg was to be comprised. There would be four noble knights, three citizens from Lofen, three from Brussels, and one each from Antwerp, Sertogenbosch, Tienen, and Zoutleu. 
So of the 14 members, 10 of them were not from the nobility. This is very different from Magna Carta, which only provided representation for barons. It required that the members of the council take a holy oath to make sure that they do their ultimate best to protect the public interest and to uphold justice. The council would meet every three weeks to make sure that the duke and his administrators were sticking to the agreements laid out. Most amazingly, it allowed for the citizens of Brabant to resist their duke or his descendants should the terms of the charter be broken by any of them. The Charter of Kortenberg is an extremely early example in Europe of the right for ordinary people to assemble and to be represented. That's right, at the beginning of the awful 14th century, this is a remarkably progressive agreement between the ruler and the ruled. And it was in Brabant that it happened. Argued to be the first European state to give rights of participation in government to its social estates, including commoners. So there you go. The French are going to love this. But participatory rights of the estates, bet you didn't know, that was Dutch. Jan II died a month later, and his young son Jan III of Brabant came to power. The Charter of Kortenberg set the terms of his rule. This was a big deal. Whether you were on a farm, in a barn, or even a man-at-arms, you would have spun yarns about this darn young son Jan, right? He was in power. He was the rightful duke. But from his first days, the people could feel that they had at least a say in it. The terms of the relationship between ruler and ruled was agreed upon. And so began a tradition of such charters in the Duchy of Brabant. In 1314, a similar charter of Walloon was signed in the south of Brabant. Jan III ruled for over 40 years. Despite knowing that his interests lay in ongoing trade relationships with England, he also faced enmity from all corners. Brabant's dukes and Flanders' counts were in an ongoing dispute over the area around the town of Mechelen, which intensified when it was made the staple for English wool exchange. Jan was a cousin of the English king, yet was not afraid of flirting his loyalties with the French king. He even accepted a fiefdom and proclaimed himself a vassal of France. But the expansionist policies of the French king drove a wedge between Brabant and other lowlander territories, specifically Holland, Zeeland, Hanno, the bishopric of Liège and Gelders. An alliance of these territories marched against him in 1334, but an agreement was negotiated by the French king. In these negotiations, Jan III lost parts of his realm to the Count of Gelders. So when around this time his cousin, the English king, made a claim on the French crown to kick off the Hundred Years' War, Jan III switched allegiances. By now the Flemish towns were basically out of control, with Van Artefelder's influence growing, and they could not be counted on. Jan III supported England putting an embargo on Flanders and on the Flemish counts, and hopefully diverting all of that cloth production and all the wealth to Brabant completely. In the deal that they struck, Brabantine merchants would be protected in England, and in return, Jan III would lend Edward the soldiers that he could 
so that he could continue waging war against the French. This was meant to be a secret deal and supposed to be kept from the knowledge of the French king, but the secret was ruined when Eddie just rocked up in Antwerp with his fleet in 1338. As you will recall from our last episode, he would head on to Slaus and negotiate with Jakob van Artefelde and then in Ghent be crowned two years later. Before then, however, Jan would agree to marry his second daughter, Margaret of Brabant, to the king's son, the crown prince of England, the Black Prince. But alas, by the end of 1340, Edward would be facing pressure to return to England in addition to having run out of money. He would depart the lowlands and leave the Flemish to themselves to face the king of France. The Duke of Brabant, meanwhile, was left alone to deal with the ramifications of the chaos erupting in Flanders on its border and being deeply caught up in the family feuding going on across the lowlands. So given the English had just made a hasty exit from the continent, the marriage between Margaret of Brabant and the Black Prince never eventuated. Now, talks between Brabant and France were once again entered into, and following an agreement signed in 1347, the two once again became allied. In this agreement, Margaret of Brabant's marital fate was sealed, and she was betrothed beyond belief to the new Count of Flanders, Louis of Marlay. Louis's father, Louis of Nevers, had been unable to curtail the power of the Flemish towns. Louis of Marlay, however, largely succeeded in bringing Flanders back under his control following the fall of Artefelde at the hands of an angry mob in Ghent. His strategy was one of divide and conquer. When he faced the armies of Ghent and Bruges, he promised them that he would give them back their privileges and pardon them. At that, Bruges went over to Louis's side. Louis of Marley seems to have been a better politician than his father ever was. He knew that Flanders needed English wool, so he agreed that his subjects could keep on recognizing Edward as the King of France, as long as Edward himself would accept Louis's rule in Flanders and his ongoing allegiance to the French king, Philip VI. By the end of 1349, Louis of Marley was in control of all of Flanders again, though rebellious elements would remain in some of the towns and especially Ghent, which he had had to take back by force. So that was the state of things when the Black Death struck the lowlands in 1349. It was a vulnerable time, and this was the moment for any ambitious people to try and take a step up to fill the void left by thousands of dead people, commoners and nobles alike. Speaking of a void to fill, here's an ad break. We'll be back shortly. So returning back now to the vulnerable times of the middle 14th century, Jan III, Duke of Brabant, had three daughters, and marrying them off tactically would be one of his main concerns. As we spoke about earlier, the middle one, Margaret, had been married to Louis of Marley in Flanders. Jan had actually made considerable marriages for his other daughters too. The eldest, Joanna, 
was wed to the 15-year-younger Wenceslaus of Bohemia, who was the Duke of Luxembourg, and the half-brother of Charles IV of Luxembourg, the Holy Roman Emperor. The younger daughter, Marie, was married off to Reinald III of Helders. He was the Duke of Helders, but he wasn't the only one claiming the right to that position. Over the 1350s to 1370s, the matter of succession to rule in Helders would also become a hot conflict. So by the time Jan III died in 1355, the rulers of Flanders, Helders, and the Holy Roman Emperor himself had direct vested interest in the matter of Brabant and its rule. Jan III planned for his eldest daughter Johanna to succeed him. However, as Jan II had set a precedent for in 1312 with the Charter of Kortenberg, and then other concessions since by Jan III, the different estates in Brabant, being the nobles, clergy, and the city burghers, the citizens, also had a direct say in the matter of who would succeed Jan III. They agreed to Joanna, but as her husband was a foreigner who had grown up in Bohemia around modern-day Czech Republic and was the half-brother of the emperor, they required some assurances that the privileges and understandings of the relationship between the Brabant rulers and their subjects would continue to be adhered to. The result of this was a reaffirmation of the terms that had been laid out in the Charter of Kortenberg. In 1356, Joanna and Wenceslaus came to Brabant to take the reins of power. As they went from city to city, beginning in Lofen in January, they made what would become fancily known in French as La Joie Entrée, in Dutch as De Blijde Incomps, and in Australian as The Joyous Entry. The Joyous Entry was not just them making a frilled and feathered appearance to wave tidily at all their new subjects, but in the tradition of the Charter of Kortenberg, it was to put their names to an agreement that established things like the assembly by the estates, controlling taxes, restating town privileges, and also agreeing that the lands of Brabant would remain indivisible. The joyous entry also ensured that if Joanna was to die without an heir, she would be succeeded by her natural heirs, meaning her sisters. This was a slap in the face to her new husband's family, the House of Luxembourg, Bohemia. Strikingly similar to the Charter of Kortenberg, Joanna and Wenceslaus also gave consent in the joyous entry that they and their descendants could be resisted against should they break any of the terms of the agreement. On the list of History of the Netherlands podcast favorite clauses, sitting just behind Santa, number two would have to be the resistance clause of the joyous entry. We'll quote it for you now. Coming from Robert Stein's book, Magnanimous Dukes and Rising States. Quote, If we, our successor or our descendants, should commit any act or cause any act to be done that contravenes these articles, points, and stipulations, either as a whole or one of the parts, in any way whatsoever, we allow and stipulate that our good subjects mentioned before no longer owe us, our successors, or our descendants any service nor obedience until such time as we have rectified the said act and completely renounced it. 
End quote. The resistance clause would become one of the ways that future rebellions in the Low Countries would be justified. So, what a perfect situation this was. Surely now, forevermore, the subjects of Brabant and their feudal lords would exist in a blissful harmony together, assured of their own rights and inviolable against their desecration. Right? Wrong. The terms of the joyous entry would be almost instantly broken, as the question of power in Brabant now came to the fore of lowlander politics. The Flemish Count Louis of Marley, married to Joanna's younger sister Margaret, was looking at Brabant and at the area around Mechelen with its fancy wool exchange with very hungry eyes. In June of 1356, not six months after the first joyous entry of Joanna and Wenceslaus, Louis of Marley made his own claim on the Duchy of Brabant by virtue of his wife, and he backed up his claim with swords. So kicked off the War of Brabant's succession. Louis' Flemish troops made quick gains over the course of two invasions in early August. He first landed about a thousand men to lay siege to Antwerp, blockading the city's connection to the sea and with another flotilla ravaging the surrounding countryside. In another invasion, he sent a force south, heading for Brussels. Brabantine forces were positioned to halt them, but proved to be no more than a mere obstacle to be overcome. The Flemish army continued to scourge the countryside as they moved through. Within sight of Brussels, they were met by another Brabant army. This too was overcome, and as the survivors fled back towards Brussels, they were shocked to see the people of Brussels had already locked the town's gates out of fear that any Flemish would be amongst those seeking entry, forcing the survivors to continue to flee. The next day, Brussels surrendered, and two days after that, Louis of Marley made a triumphal entry into the city. Not a joyous one, but a triumphal one. By the end of August, Lofen and Antwerp had also fallen to the Flemish. Joanna and Wenceslau could only count two cities left in their domain, Maastricht and Sertogenbosch, which also happened to be the two most remote that they had. Joanna holed up in lands that were her dowry, a place called Binche, while Wenceslau had to flee and went and took stock of this mad chess move that had been made by their brother-in-law. Wenceslau also called in for some family support and went to see his older half-brother, Charles IV, Holy Roman Emperor. They had a brother-to-brother chat, some negotiations, and coming to an agreement that became the Treaty of Maastricht, Charles agreed to back the cause of Joanna and Wenceslaus, as long as Brabant would remain in the Luxembourg-Bohemia line, directly contravening the terms laid out in the joyous entry. But for Joanna holed up in Binche, having the Empire on her side was something that gave her a little bit more hope than having the support of the townspeople underneath her. It was something she could brag about, that the emperor was with them as she went around trying to eke back support from all the lords and towns that had already surrendered to the Flemish. Quite quickly, the tide began to turn in her favour. The news of imperial support also inspired some homegrown acts of patriotism, with the best-known example being in Brussels, 
a patrician of the city, Everard Sarklas, led a group of men-at-arms. They scaled the city walls, brought down the Flemish flag flying above the town, a black lion on a gold background, and replaced it with the standard of Brabant, which, confusingly, was a gold lion on a black background. Despite this, the town's citizens were smart enough to tell the difference, and encouraged by the gumption and bravery of Everard and his men, a popular uprising erupted, and the Flemish were driven from Brussels by the end of the next day. This allowed Joanna and Wenceslaus to make their joyous entry into that city in late 1356, where again they signed the document which they had already paid little heed to. Within just five days, all other Brabant towns had followed suit, and but for a small area called the Malinas, by the end of October 1356. Wenceslaus could happily tell his big bro Charles that the duchy was back in their hands. But of course, it was not a case of all's well that ends well. Louis of Marley refused to concede, and so the Brabant Duke and Duchess went about trying to diplomatically get themselves to some level of stability on this crazy chessboard. After trying their best at diplomatic wrangling and having some of it fire back in their faces, they were left with little choice but to accept a mediated peace, known as the Treaty of Art, which greatly favoured Flanders. They agreed that Brabant had lost Antwerp to Flanders as part of the dowry of Louis of Marley's wife, the younger sister of Joanna. Once again, the terms of the joyous entry were being stamped upon, since here were the lands of Brabant being divided. It turned out that the centuries-old system of feudal acquisition and familial or collateral inheritance would not just collapse with the flick of a quill on a piece of parchment. It became quickly clear that the joyous entry was to be more symbolic rather than something the rulers of Brabant or any other domain would actually have to adhere to. Nonetheless, for centuries, it was something which any ascendant Duke of Brabant would have to swear upon when coming to power, and the ideal of it would hold importance for not only Brabant, but for the Netherlands as a whole, going into the future. But now, not only were Joanna and Wenceslau going back on their word to the people, but by signing the Treaty of Art, they also went directly against one of the important stipulations of the Treaty of Maastricht, which they had agreed with with the Emperor just months earlier. What would happen if the new Duke and Duchess did not have an heir? Well, now with the Treaty of Art, the titles for Brabant would pass to the next in line after Joanna, who was her younger sister Margaret, the wife of the Count of Flanders. In this case, the House of Luxembourg-Bohemia, the imperial family, would have no claim on it. They were not at all happy about the thought of Brabant not going to them, and this would remain a point of contention for years to come. In the end, Louis of Marley came out on top in the matters of the Brabant succession. This Count of Flanders had proven himself to be quite a savvy operator, what with his pacification of his own rebellious subjects at home and his successful war abroad in Brabant, bringing in new cities to his domains. But as always, Flanders' focus would have to remain on its entanglement between France and England. But whereas in the past, Flemish counts had usually chosen to side with one of the great powers, 
much to the chagrin of the other, Louis decided to remain aloof and to dangle a carrot in front of both of them, seeing which one wanted it the most. That carrot was marriage with his daughter, Margaret of Flanders. And as the heir to Flanders, and being that marriage to her would mean being able to rule in Flanders in her name, to create a dynasty to continue doing that, and potentially also to be in line for the inheritance of Brabant along the way, her inheritance was a tasty carrot indeed. The weight of all that, plus the fact that this was the awful 14th century, meant that she was being shopped around from pretty much the day she was born. So, who wanted her more, the French or the English? Well, in 1355, despite Louis having held negotiations with England about it, she was married to a French lord, Philip of Roves, Duke of Burgundy. Now, these two were both kids, one around 10 years old, the other about five Obviously, their parents got a little bit too excited about getting to go out and shop for little person's tuxedos and dresses and shoes. Or their parents were totally inured to the process of using their kids as pieces in their political plays. Maybe both. Either way, it's all pretty messed up. Philip of Ruse doesn't matter a jot. In 1361, he died in one of two suggested ways, being the plague or falling off his horse. Maybe he fell off the horse because he was vomiting plague-induced blood. We don't know. Anyway, his death without an heir meant that the lands of Burgundy now became ruled by the French crown. The king of France by this point was John II, and he gave the title of Duke of Burgundy to his youngest son, another Philip. Philip had a reputation already, due to, at the age of 14, having fought at one of the great early battles of the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Poitiers. There, he and his father, the king, had been captured and held prisoner for several years. For his supposed bravery throughout, he earned the nickname, The Bold. Louis of Malais now once again had an opportunity to dangle his now 11-year-old widowed daughter in front of the monarchs of France and England. Discussions were had to organise a marriage between Margaret and Edmund of Langley, the fourth son of English King Edward III. But Louis didn't commit to anything because he wanted to wait and see whether he'd get a better offer from the French. Edward threw all sorts of extras in to seal the deal, such as Calais and even potentially Holland and Hanau, which he had dubious claims to, but which were vulnerable, particularly Holland as it had fallen into a civil war, which we are going to talk about in the next episode. Desperate to stop Flanders from falling into the hands of his arch enemies, the new French king, Charles V, had the Pope in Avignon refused to give his blessings to this proposed marriage. The reason given was that the two were too closely related. My question is, how can you be in the upper nobility in Europe in the 1300s and not be too closely related to whoever you're married to. Louis of Malay didn't care, however, because within three years, he had managed to get what he probably wanted all along. Charles V offered his younger brother, that Duke of Burgundy we mentioned, Philip the Bold. And get this, 
they were just as closely related as the proposition which had been refused by the Pope. Out of this deal, Louis' potential grandkids would now be powerful French dukes, but even better for him, the deal included that he would be ceded back control of Walloon Flanders. Those cities which we saw hacked off Flanders in 1305, but which we erroneously and prematurely said disappeared from the lowlands forever in our previous episode. Lil, Douai, and Orshi. With the new marriage arrangement between Louis of Marley's daughter and the brother of the King of France, Walloon Flanders now came back into the fold. Only for a little spell. So on the 19th of June, 1369, Margaret of Flanders and Philip the Bold, the Duke of Burgundy, were married in Ghent. This is a watershed moment for the history of the Netherlands. It would bring the Dukes of Burgundy onto the chessboard, which everybody has been fighting over, and allow them to begin making moves of their own. This marriage will spawn a short-lived but extraordinarily influential dynasty. It will be their grandson who will become that man that we mentioned at the beginning, sitting alone on top of them all, the eventual grandmaster, fated to become the first person since the Carolingian era, some 500 years earlier, to be the sole ruler of all of the lowlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.